When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. When leaders find the courage to distribute rather than hoard power, creativity can multiply, trust can deepen and inclusivity can expand. That's the argument of today's guest, Matthew Barzan. He's the former US ambassador to the United Kingdom and he spoke to Kamal Ahmed about his leadership insights that he's gained over the course of a successful and varied career. It's a fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Matthew's book with the Intelligence Square discount in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Welcome, Matthew, not quite literally, to a rather sweaty London, uh, and also on a day that is Freedom Day, we've been told by the government. So in England, at least, we are allowed to go about our business as we see fit. But I hope everyone is still being cautious, as the Prime Minister is telling us. Now, Matthew, you have a glittering career former US ambassador to the United Kingdom and to Sweden. And the last time we met, Matthew, I don't know if you'll remember, was that that at one of your rather luscious garden parties, I believe the US ambassador's residence in London has the second largest back garden in the city. Is that right? I've been told that. Which is the biggest? Buckingham Palace. Correct. So, We met there at one of the gorgeous garden parties that uh, Matthew used to host when he was the U.S. ambassador. He worked, of course, on Barack Obama's National Finance Committee in 2008 and also as National Finance Chair for the 2012 re-election campaign. And actually, Matthew, in your earlier career, you were very much involved in really the opening chapters of the story of the Internet spending a decade working for the news and reviews website CNET, which you left in 2004 to advise and invest in startup internet companies. So Matthew, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. But I want to start at the beginning and welcome to all the Intelligence Squared, wonderful followers that Intelligence Squared had. As it said in the discussion around this event on the Intelligence Squared website, Your big idea is what is the difference between what you describe as pyramid leadership and constellation leadership. Now, I have attempted to try and put this in pictorial form, as you do wonderfully in the book, because you talk about the dollar bill. Now, I'm going to hold up a copy of, it's not a real one, copy of a dollar bill here, and I hope we can all see there. There's the dollar bill. And you'll see on one side of it, one side of it you see here, if people can see that, is a pyramid. And on the other side is, at the top here, a constellation of stars. Where I'd love you to start, Matthew, is just tell us what that story told you and how you came to this conclusion or this differential between pyramid leadership and constellation leadership, which really is at the heart Mm. of the book. 
Sure. And thank you for having me. And hello, everybody. I wish I was there in person uh, on Freedom Day. Well, the story starts on July 4th, 1776, which talking to a British audience is always a little tricky. I mean, you talked about meeting at a garden party in our backyard, as we call it. Um, and we had to throw, like we do in embassies all over the world, a July 4th party. Potentially tricky with you lot because, you know, it was independence from from you all. And so a British friend joked to me for my first July 4th party in London. He's like, oh, no, don't worry. We celebrate that, too. We call it Thanksgiving, which I thought was kind of clever. But back to the story. So on July 4th, 1776, in Philadelphia, turns out there were two declarations made that day, the famous one. But the second one was we need a logo. Like, I'm sure your new news venture, you had that moment. You wanted a new logo for this new news endeavor. And so they did. But the tricky thing is it took longer to design that logo you just showed. It was a two-sided logo um, than it did to win the war. And we don't have time to get into the whole bit. But for the back of the logo, they settled on that pyramid, which symbolized for them strength and durability of consolidated power. That's for the back. Now, for the front... They had the eagle, and this all took a while, but they had the eagle uh, with olive branches representing peace and arrows representing war, and then the shield. But there was a formula for these things back then, a formula that you guys, I think, developed. And and the, the front of the, of the logo needed a uh, motto, and so it was the Latin e pluribus unum, from many, one. And then they needed a crest. Now, the crest was supposed to serve as the essence of the overall thing. This took a while, but they settled on what they called the radiant constellation. And on the dollar bill, it's all quite geometric. But the original one that they approved was asymmetrical stars, big stars, little stars, kind of disorganized, but radiating light behind them. And this was a very practical thing for them. This is how they thought you should think about how the newly independent states would choose to work together in the United States, how the United States as a country which choose to work and engage with other countries around the world, or even more small, sort of how you as a citizen would engage in the community around you. And it is basically a symbol for what I argue in the book is a symbol for interdependence. And I think it is the best idea America has ever had that we celebrate Independence Day, right? But any band of revolutionaries can declare independence. The hard part is figuring out what to do after that which is interdependence. And we don't celebrate Interdependence Day in America, but we could and we should, I think. And obviously we have fallen short of that ideal at the beginning when we made those, those documents and ever since. But it is a great idea how you can be one from many, how you can achieve unity without demanding uniformity, how you can get the best of diversity without succumbing to division. And this, as I argue, is the constellation is a good image to keep in mind, you can be yourself, a star, but fit into something much bigger than you by making new connections to those around you, other stars. And I contrast that, as you said, with the pyramid. Now, I think everyone on this Zoom, we know the world of the pyramid. This is, I think, our default setting. This is the world of up, down, in, out, ranking, rating, sifting, sorting. It's the world of top down. But interestingly, it's also the world of bottom up. Right. Bottom up sounds better at first if you've if, if you've been frustrated by top down, as I think we all have. Bottom up, if you think about it, Kamal, forces you into one of two roles. Either you are looking at those around you as beneath you or you're looking at yourself as beneath someone else. Neither of which I think is a very helpful or empowering way to, to get big things done together. Matthew, thank you so much. So that's the that's the the sort of almost the dilemma or the tension in your book, which runs through your book and raises so many questions. So that, Matthew, this notion of interdependence replacing dependence, I think is, as I say, the, the heart of the book. And, and I scribbled as I, as I was reading, <laughs> I scribbled in the margin what I described as the US dilemma. And, and you really raise it as well regularly through the book. And you quote Alexis de Tocqueville, the famous French uh, philosopher, and you quote his, his statement, which is, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. And I suppose the struggle in the book, and I wanted to ask you about this, is that although the principles and the founding 
idea of America does cleave to that detoxful idea of Americans all working together isn't actually the country that we look at now really has all the hallmarks actually of the pyramid. The world might hear the US saying, do as we do. Capitalism is the only way to do things. Survival of the fittest, learn how to win. And you touch on many of these themes in the book, but I just wondered in that broad sense first, constellation in theory, but America is actually pyramid in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on the tension. I think it it started, and you go back to that logo, they never even bothered printing in, into, into metal, casting into metal. They never used the back of our great seal, which is what we call the logo, for 150 years after they created it, until the depths of the financial depression in the 1930s, where FDR had seen the government sort of powerless to do anything about it, and he saw the very powerful big business that had consolidated during the previous decades. So he decided to fight consolidated power with consolidated power. He puts the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill and he didn't do it obviously intentionally. Well, he did do it very intentionally. In fact, they put the front of the logo first on the dollar. And we, we have in the book, as you could see, he approves the new dollar bill, but he insists that the pyramid come first. And we put it first in the depression, first in the second world war, first in the cold war. And it has sort of remained I think too much at the front of our minds in life, in foreign policy, in business. And it has a role and a place, and we can talk about that. There is a place for the pyramid mindset. It just shouldn't be at the front of our minds. And it crowds out this instinct to look at others like stars and to build big things together. I mean, if you, another way to think about it, you think in our adult lifetimes, and I think this plays out in the UK, but obviously, I can think of it more in America, but if you think about whether this would work, Tory labor. If there were just two cars in a, in a, in a parking lot, identical cars, and the name of the game is for viewers of the Zoom to guess which is the Democrats' car, which is the Republicans, okay? They only have one bumper sticker, one word on each bumper sticker. Car number one says freedom. Car number two says together, right? Everyone gets this right. The together is the Democrat and the freedom is the Republican. And what we've seen in COVID has brought this into stark relief in both countries, both your country and my country. The freedom crowd over my adult lifetime has taken that to the extreme, which is freedom from, freedom from, just leave me alone. The together crowd has gone to its extreme of we're all in this together. Sometimes they'll talk about herd immunity as if we're cattle, like, you know, and it's like not me, us, pure collective. And I think that freedom from one another and total togetherness are deeply unsatisfying for what we need and what we actually want. And what we need and want is freedom together. Freedom together, not some mushy compromise, half free, half together. Freedom through and with one another. That is the best American idea. It's not limited to America. That's democracies in general. Offer, if we're willing to work for it, and if we haven't lost the habits of it, how we can be free together. It's fascinating, Matthew, and it has been a challenge, I think, for many Western democracies, economies, and societies. And you touch on some really big themes in your book, and I'm going to go through go through a few of them now. And this constant, sometimes seesaw effect between periods where maybe togetherness is 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 more in vogue, and we lean towards. And I think you're right. It's not a binary situation, is it? You're leaning towards togetherness, or you're leaning towards the notion of striking out, maybe under that freedom banner, but under many different banners. And you quote Robert Putnam, and Robert famously wrote an essay, "Bowling Alone: America's Declining Social Capital." That became a book, which was actually rather more balanced in its title. It became the book "Bowling Alone: The Collapse and Revival." of American community. And I just wondered, Matthew, why you quoted Robert's book, because Robert's initial essay was very much seen as quite a negative take on the fact that in America, lots of people had become isolated and actually were doing their own thing in their own bowling lane and not seeing the bigger picture. Mm. But then, as you say, when he came to write the book and maybe looked a little more into the evidence, 
he said there was this sort of seesaw effect and that the revival was happening. This was around the turn of the century, the exactly. time of the dot-com boom, the new yeah. century. There was an optimistic moment, wasn't it? It was, and I found myself as a young person in their 20s involved in early commercial internet world, World Wide Web businesses. There was that sort of techno-optimism, which promised something. It, it was 1989 was that year, I think, the essay, his essay came out, and it was, you know, the Berlin Wall goes down, the World Wide Web goes up. So it's this inflection point, this hinge of history. You know, which way are we going to do? The pyramid maybe goes away. Kind of, It felt like a jump ball, to use a basketball term. But I think as we look back upon that time, and I quote Sherry Turkle from MIT, who wrote a book, wrote a book recently called Alone Together, right, which gets at that weird thing of we've used technology to become free from hassles, free from, free from, and it just leads to alienation and loneliness too often. And so what the, the great leaders I try to talk about in the book, and we'll get to this later, have realized that, and it sounds sort of strange, but pure selfishness isn't the answer. But, and this is tempting, it is not like what we need, these leaders, I think, show us, and in some cases tell us, the opposite of selfless of selfishness isn't selflessness, right? And I thought, Kamal, all the work you've done in economics, covering it at the highest levels, there's that famous Adam Smith, which I will paraphrase, right? You do not rely on the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer for your dinner, right? You, you do not rely on them being selfless. And we have interpreted that over 200 plus years as, oh, I know, it's them being selfish that adds up invisible hand and all that. And Mark Carney, I think in his great new book, I don't know if you had a chance to read that, but, but wonderful, uh, book called Values talks about that. And it's like, well, what is going on between just today between the butcher, the baker, the brewer and you and your dinner and who you're having to dinner and why you're having them to dinner? And it seems to me it is pretty obvious that it isn't total dependence on someone else's charity, nor is it total independence. What is happening every day in the marketplace, literally buying bread, beer, is interdependence. That word is kind of loaded. Some people love it. Some people really don't like it. But that is what is going on, has been going on. And there are habits around it and practices around it that these leaders can show. And I think we can redevelop these habits. You mentioned um, Sherry Turkle and famously, who famously said, uh, in Alone Together, never have we been so connectable and never have we felt so disconnected. So I think you're right to for us to be able to explore that. You go through lots of examples in businesses around where this idea of interconnectedness, of working together, of what I sense is with and we, rather than sort of I and alone. Those seem to be the sort of some balancing words that you use D. Hock, the founder, really, of the fundamental principles of the credit card. Now, just, just take us through Mr. Hock's experience of trying to help, I think it was then Bank of America, build the first credit card system and what, what lessons we might learn from that. So D. Hock, he's still alive. I haven't met him. I wish I had. And I've sent him a note thanking him for his story. He wrote a beautiful autobiography called From Many One, which I encourage people to read. And it's funny, he hated the word credit card because credit, he didn't want people to go into debt. And so as you tell the story of what became Visa, it's hard now with 20% APR, right? It, it's so loaded in so many people's lives who are burdened with credit card debt. But his idea was basically electronic money. And what he got to do was a great example of pyramids versus constellations. The old system was... Big banks like Bank of America on the West Coast, Citigroup and others on the East Coast, they would get all the little banks. And he worked at a mid -tier, he was a mid-level manager at a mid-tier bank and he was middle-aged, right? And they would force all the or encourage all these little banks to join their network, join their pyramid, and then they were told what to do. And they were forced to cooperate with one another in the Bank of America system. And then they were in brutal competition with the guys on the East Coast. So forced cooperation and forced competition. 
and it wasn't working. I mean, the whole system was breaking down. Millions of dollars were being lost. It was a nightmare. And government was going to get in and regulate it because it was such a catastrophe. So they charged DHOC, this mid-level manager at a mid-tier bank, to figure out a system. And we don't have time to get into it now, but he sits down with a bunch of other smart people in a windowless conference room in Sausalito, California, and they reimagine a world. What if you could cooperate on the core things you need to cooperate on, but be free to compete in other ways? And so they dream up the whole system. And then they have to go pitch the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, this huge behemoth, and say, in this new system, he said, let me get this right. I have no more power, no more voting rights, no more anything than your tiny little bank. And DHOC says, yes, that's right, sir. You have to give up all that power but you're going to get it back again so you can give it away again because this new system isn't going to break. And trust me, you're going to want cooperation and competition in this new way as opposed to your world. And they said yes. And they took this leap and everyone said yes. And now it is the biggest commercial entity in the history of the world in terms of dollars transacted per year, all beginning by yeah. realizing. And this is where I think we can apply those lessons to our life. If you're in a business, if you're in a nonprofit or any in really any realm, that what DHOC realized and, and other leaders too, like the guys behind Wikipedia, is that power is sort of obviously something that if you lord it over other people, that has damaging effects. I think we all got that memo. Hoarding it all to yourself, you touched on. Sherry Turkle, Robert Putnam, others, hoarding power to yourself leads to loneliness and isolation. The next tempting but not helpful thing which we're in right now, is I know power sharing, right? That sounds better than hoarding power and lording power. But power sharing has within it, I think, the seeds of its own destruction, which is it is implying that power is a scarce resource and you are fundamentally divvying it up or dividing it so someone's going to get less of it. What DHOC realized, what all these other leaders realized, is power isn't a scarce resource like something you mine, M-I-N-E. It is something you make. And you make it with other people sitting around tables together. That's the insight. And once you're in the power making business and you can only make it through and with other people, that unlocks a whole new kind of constellation mindset and way of thinking and way of making things. One person, Matthew, that you spend a lot of time explaining is someone that is really, as you say, has been largely forgotten in the journey of what makes good leaders. And you describe her as the management gurus, gurus, guru, i.e. the people at the very top who are now described as management gurus look to this woman as the person who taught them a huge amount. And her name is Mary Parker Follett. Now, just take us through what Mary Parker Follett uh, did. And, and also, and I'm then going to come to one of the great questions that's already popped up from our audience here. I know it's a bit early, but it's such a good question. It connects to this. Just take us through what Mary Parker Follett did and why she is not as well remembered as many of the management gurus who are quoted regularly today. Well, oh, exactly. Well, so in 2003, as you mentioned, Harvard Business School does this question where they ask 200 odd global gurus, hey, who's your guru? So they published that list. So this is the guru's guru. Number one, Peter Drucker. Here's the thing. Those people did not name this woman, Mary Parker Follett. It was Peter Drucker towards the end of his life. He reveals in an essay, he all along had a guru, Mary Parker Follett, born 1868 outside of my home state of Massachusetts or outside of Boston, Massachusetts, died in 1933, spent a lot of time in London uh, and was very involved with London School of Economics in its early days. So she's really not known to those global gurus. Even now, not then, not now. And it's a shame because she has so much to offer. And if you just think now, she's writing 100 years ago-ish at a time when America and the UK is coming out of a global pandemic, raging debates around minimum wage, fear of big business, fear of government over-regulation, over social, economic, racial, political division everywhere she looks. Sound familiar? Yep. <laughs> and those can, that, that to, to, to all of us, I think th those issues can feel so daunting. And what was brilliant among many things about Mary Parker Follett is she said, look, I think we can do something about this beginning tomorrow at our next meeting, wherever that might be. Or today, Monday morning meeting. Uh, I, I've missed Monday morning in the UK. But 
And she said, really practical. She said, look, there are four possible outcomes in any meeting we have, and only one of them is worthwhile. So really quickly, bad outcome number one, Kamal, you try to win the meeting. You come in with a good idea and you try to sell the rest of us. What a waste. Why are we even there? Number two, the flip of it. You go into a meeting and you just think, oh, John seems super pushy, you know, let him have his way. That's no good because you're denying the group of a unique opportunity or unique perspective, namely yours. Third outcome is really the hardest for us to, to accept because we're told it's really good. Bad outcome number three, Follett says, is compromise. She's like, no, it's not really good. It's just little mini victories and mini acquiescences. You, you don't leave that meeting with the mo- at most, you leave it with a partial victory. The only reason we should gather around a table, she says, is co-creation. You need to make something together. If you make something together, and we all know this feeling, we all know good meetings, and, and they shouldn't be as rare as they are. You contribute something to that idea. So do you. The whole group does it. You come up, and it might be making a determination. It might be making a whiteboard drawing of a product rollout plan. It might, doesn't really matter. The act of making something as a group at the end of that meeting, you are in that shared idea. It is forever in you, right? And you're not diminished. You haven't lost yourself in it in some kind of collectivist way. You are still you. You are more you as the result of having made that with other people. And so to finish off on your question, I think we, inspired by Mary Follett, should take three expectations into our next encounter to do something about this division we see all around. Number one, expect to be needed. Bring your truth, bring your whole self. Number two, expect to need others. That's why you're having a meeting. And critically, and most importantly, expect to be changed. And what I mean by that is you have to leave that meeting just a little bit different than you entered it. That time, the next time you bring your full self to a meeting, it is a different enhanced full self and not the same old one. Now, actually, I said I'm just going to come to one question now. I'm going to start the Q&A a little bit later, but there was one excellent question, the first one to come in, which really touches on this, because why was why was Mary Parker Follett forgotten amongst all the gurus of gurus of gurus? And some might suggest because she was a woman, frankly. And someone, one of our audience members has asked, do you find men or women more receptive to your ideas? Ooh, uh- On the first part of the question, sexism obviously had a huge amount to do with it. Professor Amy Edmondson and I had a great podcast chat a few weeks back, and and she is a, knows a ton. She never lost sight of Mary Follett. She's known about her work all of Professor Edmondson's career. And she had two reasons for why she's lost. Sexism, she said, number one. Number two, she said she didn't write in a way that made a, I'm paraphrasing Professor Edmondson, she didn't make it very grad student worthy. She wasn't sort of hard to understand and complex and nuanced. She's an amazingly gifted writer and she just kind of does it in this brilliant, homespun, honest way that doesn't lend itself to a cottage industry of commentary. So that might be one reason, I think, and the fact that she she dies in the middle of the depression the same year that FDR puts the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill and we start to get into this panic around economic panic, World War II and that decades of pyramid dominance and her whole worldview and mindset is so antithetical to the pyramid because she saw, I mean, basically her insight and this touches on the other part of the question around gender and I don't feel qualified really Is it a masculine or feminine? I mean, the matron saint of the mindset is this amazing woman, Mary Follett. Um, To me, it's not a gender thing. I mean, certainly sort of like your stereotypical alpha male jerk in business is deeply troubled and uncomfortable with the idea of a constellation. Now, that's not uniquely because they're men, but there are a lot of jerky guys who love to lord power over others who love to hoard it to themselves, who, if you say you're a star, they'd probably nod or like, yeah, of course I'm a star and all of you guys orbit around me. You know, I'm the sun and your planets. Like, okay, we know that type, male and female. This constellation view is a threat to that temperament, regardless of gender. Um, 
So I don't know if that gets at your. I think it gets it gets to oh, it gets towards it. I think it's that notion of are women and, and maybe it's 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 is the approach of many women more likely to be receptive to these ideas than many men are, and the more what's sometimes described as a more masculine approach to to leadership, I suppose, is is what the questioner is trying to. To yeah, and, towards, but and if- I'm no expert in 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 that. A lot of the stars in the book happen to be, well, I guess there's men and women, but lots of them are women. Jane Jacobs, others. I mean, uh, maybe one way at it. There's an amazing thinker, Anne Marie Slaughter, who's now CEO of the New America Foundation. She was head of policy planning at the State Department when I served overseas, and she has this great essay where she says this is about the Paris Climate Accord, and she said as an internationally trained lawyer and negotiations expert, I should hate the deal because, and then she rattles it off, it's non-binding and all these other sort of foreign policy lingo expressions. And then she says, but actually, I think it's brilliant because it's not binding. I mean, think of the word binding, like to be bound is a very limiting and restraining thing. And so she waxes beautifully about why this framework, which is open and non-binding, is actually exactly the right way to structure something. And you, I think you've seen that play out. We're early days, but that we withdrew as a country and then other people chipped in. And it's it's much more flexible and less rigid, which is more of a constellation approach than this get everything locked in in a pyramid. Now, you touched on, obviously, U.S. electoral politics just then, but also in your career as well. Now, Barack Obama, was he a constellation leader? And if he were, what, what were the examples that you saw where Obama and those around him understood some of the themes that you've come to conclusions on in your book? Quickly, because I can go on way too long about him <laughs> and about those times, so I will keep it short. Back in 2006, he's rumored to be running for president, but he's not yet. He's a newly elected senator. He comes to my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, where I host a fundraiser for him for the Senate, not for his presidential campaign, but we're hoping he might run for president. He agrees to do a big rally. We have 5,000 people. It's amazing. Then he does the sort of fundraiser part, and then he spends the night, and I get to the next day take him to meet Muhammad Ali, who's from Louisville, Kentucky. So that was kind of a neat moment. But there was a change in schedule. So he had an extra hour in his day. And he said, Matthew, would you be willing to have or were there any friends who don't like politics or they're Republicans or independents who didn't want to come to the big rally or pay money for a fundraiser? And I was like, absolutely. So last minute, we invite a bunch of people around a table and we spend an hour and he basically doesn't say much. He asks them about their hopes and fears and he takes notes. And at the end, he kind of weaves them together and it's over and everyone leaves. And two things. One person texted me right after and said, oh, my gosh, what an amazing speaker he was. Now, I know he's an amazing speaker, like everyone on this Zoom does. I mean, you may like his politics or not, but he is a gifted orator. And he had been gifted at the rally, but he barely said a word in this session that that she had seen him in. Right. And then this other person couldn't make the meeting. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. Couldn't make the small meeting. And uh, and she said, did he light up the room? And I said, I think I know what you mean. I mean, the room got lit up, but not in the way you think. And you can picture in your country and mine, those leaders who like fill up the room, like they're the sun. And then our job is to like reflect their brilliance off of us back to them and the room lights up. Not at all with him. He got everyone around that table to turn their light on. And I didn't have the image of a constellation then, but he got everyone in playing back their hopes and fears at the end in his summary, get them to think of themselves as stars and not in some pandering way. He just respectfully listened. And then this was all summed up for me. I mean, I wasn't thinking consciously about this other than just watching. Like, this is kind of neat. He did it in cornfields in Iowa, which is how someone named Barack Hussein Obama, 27 points behind, can go on and win the nomination and win the presidency. But he came his last trip to the UK. He came and we did what we call a town hall, which is kind of a baffling term for Brits, but just basically a big meeting where he'd take Q&A. And a young woman asks him a question about how to get social change accomplished, which he figured he'd answered a million times, but I never heard this particular way. And he thinks about it for a while and he says, yes, be predisposed to see the power in other people. Be predisposed. And that just is sort of a lawyerly, wonderful way that he thinks because he's also a very smart lawyer. And it just sort of struck me that that's, that's the mindset. He's looking for power 
in other people to get them to switch their lights on. And that kind of leadership is not limited to him, but it was a pretty powerful example. It's really interesting how you say how how Barack Obama behaved in your first real interactions with him before he was president. But then you do go on to set yourself and the book and all of us in the discussions about what makes good corporate life, what makes good politics, to admit that by 2012, the campaign was a pyramid campaign. And you actually quote President Obama, as he then was, saying to the Republicans after 2008, elections have consequences, I won. And your challenge, I think, is that although there are instances of this constellation leadership, the way that politics functions in Western democracies in particular, the way the media functions in Western democracies, mm. is all down to the pyramid. Who's in charge? What are their orders? And we find it very difficult to break out of that structure, despite these beams of light showing us a different yeah. direction. That yeah. is the challenge, isn't it, that your book lays out? Come on, beautifully summarized. I want to go break that down because, yes, that is <laughs> that is the essence of it. And every day we fight it in the Obama campaign to come to it. And I'm so glad we won in 2012. And I'm proud to have worked on that team. It was joyless because it was very pyramidy. We were working backwards from a set goal. We weren't open-ended, you know, for a bunch of reasons. Elections have consequences. And what I say is like, yeah, yeah, in the sort of way he meant that, which is, I won, you lost. Elections have consequences for winners, and not all of them are good. And, and the way I think about this is if you get 10 people on a Zoom, or better yet, 10 people in person, just as a thought experiment, or as a little gimmick, and you say, Okay, what's the opposite of winning? They all say losing in unison, but that's just a trick to get them warmed up. And you say, great, what's the opposite of winning and losing? Nine out of 10 of us say, I don't know, not playing, sitting it out. One out of 10 of us says playing, laughing, learning, being, love, all. I mean, the one in 10s never give the same word. It's just not sitting it out. And the encouraging part of it back to your observation and question, is that when the nine out of 10 of us hear that one out of 10 say playing, and we've said not playing, we realize, okay, most of the things we value in life, you do not win a career, you do not win parenting, you do not win a marriage, you could lose one, but you can't win one. We realize the shoulders go down, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. That's true. But we have been so indoctrinated into this pyramid up, out, win, lose world that if we're not in it, we're doing nothing, right? Because there's comfort of a type in the pyramid. It provides structure and stability and predictability. It's just not the only form of structure and order. The constellation is another kind of order, right? It's just not self-evident. Like if you look at Orion's belt, and someone shows you and calls it Orion's belt, you see a line between those stars that you will never unsee, but they're not there. You have to be told to look for them, and then you have to pass it on and tell someone else. And that same leap is required in constellation leadership. And we have these great guides in the form of other leaders who have shown us the way. You use a lovely phrase which really struck home with me. You never would describe a friendship as win-win to your friend. <laughs> and I think that was a really nice way to think about it. Let's go to a few of the questions which actually touch upon many themes that are in your book. So I'm going to allow our fantastic audience to ask them rather than, rather than me. How do leaders like Churchill, Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon fit into your leadership thesis? Now, certainly for Churchill, you have a very, very interesting part of through the Second World War and just post the Second World War about his leadership style, which you might imagine to be very pyramid, but actually you say shows glimpses of um, constellation leadership. So Churchill, Lincoln, Napoleon, how do they fit? I mean, Napoleon, I don't really feel like I know enough to, to, to give a good answer on Napoleon. My French grandfather, who was a history professor, would be horrified that I can't have a good answer on Napoleon, but I'm, I bet we have some Napoleon experts here on the Zoom, so I will leave that one off for a moment. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln has this great quote, it's not in the book, but that, that in all of his difficulties and, and dark evenings, he would look out 
at constellations and find comfort in the in the in the patterns and in the fact that they were for him a source of comfort. And I almost put that in, but then I was like, not. But Churchill is so often, I think, the image of him as an American coming to London anyway. It's like him alone on some plinth, usually way above you, all by himself with a cane or whatever. And that is an image of him. Or we got in these fake sort of media-driven things around Obama removing the, which wasn't true, right, that he didn't like Churchill and they removed his bus. So I spent an inordinate amount of time defending Obama's love of Churchill, which is a weird thing to have to go do. And then I thought, okay, what a weird way to represent Winston Churchill as a disembodied head all by itself cast in bronze, right? Which is what we were doing when we were debating that. And the image I love for him is that one on New Bond Street, I think it is, in London, which is him sitting on a park, but he, Churchill, sitting on a park bench with FDR. And my favorite bit is space in between. So we can sit down. I mean, now it's pretty good for selfies or whatever, but it's this idea of two people sitting in friendship and there's space between them, right? Daylight between them. They're not the same person. There's distance, there's space, space for you, space for disagreement, space for agreement. That to me is a great image because Churchill, as you mentioned, after all, he gets kicked out of power, official power. Truman invites him back to America. He gives this famous thing that's called the Iron Curtain speech. And what are we going to do about consolidated power that Stalin is building up across Europe. And so he uses the phrase Iron Curtain. Now, he could have proposed, I know, we should consolidate power in the face of consolidated power, but that's not what he says. He says we should form millions of special relationships. Just kind of touchy-feely, but he mean, he saw the strength in, yes, formal alliances between the U.S. and, you know, all of that stuff, but also between England and Portugal since 1386. I mean, every strand of personal connections between farmers in Suffolk and farmers in Kentucky, it all counted for him. And the title of his speech was The Sinews of Peace. And he felt that the way to confront consolidated power was through the formation of millions of special relationships, which would form sinews of peace. I think of them as constellations, just voluntary connections between free peoples. There is so much power and energy there, but you have to see it and you have to do the hard work of building and maintaining them. You touched on bottom up, and that is often a phrase that sounds initially positive, but actually is simply an inverted pyramid. But something that has come from the communities and hasn't come from maybe established power, I think is interesting. And and the next question touches on this and asks, is Black Lives Matter an example of a constellation type organization? You know, I think so. And I don't know enough about how it was created. And I need to look into that and want to learn more about it. Louisville, Kentucky, where I is my hometown, has a vibrant chapter. It certainly seems to have constellation-like elements at the beginning, which is because what's often mistook about constellations is, and the reason I'm not to give you a definitive answer, is that so it had, you know, it spread quickly with a common name and a common theme and had a big impact quickly. So those are constellation-like elements. What I'd like to learn more about and a root for those who believe in constellations, it's really important. A lot of people who are threatened by them or don't like them want to make them sound like chaos. Like, oh, I know it's just a thousand flowers blooming or it's a million stars in the night sky. It's just like, bah. it's like, no, 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 no. Whether it's Visa, whether it's Wikipedia, whether it's the Internet itself, whether it is Alcoholics Anonymous, all of these organizations have a rigorous, rigorous framework for how groups work within a group, how groups work with other groups, and that rigor. I mean, there's a reason if you take Wikipedia, which we don't have time to get into, it's kind of a miracle that 20 years on, it isn't just, and I know it's imperfect, but it is self-correcting. And it is amazing that it hasn't devolved into just a giant corkboard of self-promotion and crap, right? I mean, it makes, and it has a self-correct, it, it's going to turn everything into an encyclopedia article format. Over time, it will do that. More subjects and more conforming to the, what it wants to go do. And so rigor is a really important part. What makes Constellations interesting is all the stars you aren't connecting, right? I mean, you, you need to be 
very planful. And so it isn't just sort of that. So I'd like to learn more about how individual chapters of BLM work within each other, how chapters work with other chapters. That will be really interesting to see how that grows. It'll be interesting as well, pushing on to the next question, which is around its practical applications. How can we do this practically? And I'm thinking to myself, having worked in and helped run very large global organizations, for me, particularly BBC News, how would this work day to day when sometimes you've just got to make a decision? But a question here about another sector. Can the constellation mindset be applied to something like urban planning? Ooh, all right. That is, I, I would love to learn more from that questioner. Yes. And urban planning, and I talk about Jane Jacobs. I wanted to do, I'm working on a second book now in my head and a little bit on the computer, but I really want to give Jane Jacobs, who is this amazing, was this amazing leader, famous in the urban planning world, but she had a lot to say about Adam Smith and economics for her less famous book towards the end of her life. And The Nature of Economies is a book written by Jane Jacobs that I highly recommend. It is really small and really brilliant and dense, dense in a good way. So yes, and and remember, like the worst things that progressives did in America were done under the banner of, and this is Robert Moses, this is what made Jane Jacobs famous, was, I would just say fallen progressives, but like, who were so convinced they had the right idea in the name of slum clearance, in air quotes, that they went and ripped out city by city, Boston, where I grew up, they did it in Baltimore, they did it in Louisville, where I live now ripped up decades and decades, hundreds of years of vibrant black owned business homes, you know, topsoil and rich, wonderful ecosystems. They ripped it up, destroyed it and said, you're welcome. Right. It's just like, it is horrible. It was done by do-gooders patting themselves on the back all along the way because they thought they had a clean, perfect system and they were just going to go give it to people. And it's awful and destructive, and we're dealing with the consequences of it now. So, yes, urban, you know, and that word is so loaded. Like, I'm almost allergic to urban planning because it's sort of like planning is so important and our cities are so important. But you'd love to – that word has been so charged by the destruction done on its behalf that I would like a new word or a new set of words and phrases to come, um, which – we have suffered, I think you're right, Matthew, we have suffered some of that in many of our cities in the UK as well under the name of progress and often under the name of we should be doing what America is doing. Maybe I you, know, you exactly. touch on this idea of so, co-creation. So, so here's what Jane Jacobs asks. This is a thought experiment that I find helpful to the question around urban planning, but in all of our lives. She says, okay, imagine sunlight, energy from the sun is exactly the same in the rainforest in Brazil, and then you go east and you have, stick with me on the geography, it's rough. She, she gets it right, but I'm a little, you know, and the Namibian desert, right? Same amount of sunlight. Think about what each, each place does with that sunlight. In the rainforest, that sunlight is recirculated and re-energized at the canopy level, all the way down to the topsoil and everything in between. It's an energy regeneration machine. In the desert, a bunch of it's absorbed. Most of it is just kicked back, unused from the sand. And her image is, she says, we in the West, when, you know, our soybean field or our cornfield is much more like a desert in terms of its creative use or, you know, lack of creative use and recycling of energy. And so she, where other people see chaos and order or what they used to call slums, she sees energy recirculating, recycling. There is order of a type that is beautiful. She called them constellation. You know, she, she liked this weird mishmash that we see on city streets. There's order and stability there. It isn't the rigid pyramid looks good on a PowerPoint slide order that many urban planners of the old days liked to inflict on communities. So if you start to look at where energy is circularly flowing, that will make you hip. And she said, you can only study prosperity. You can't study poverty. No scientists study cold. They only study heat. So we should look for places with heat and say, how do you get more heat places instead of just pondering why places are cold, which is a pretty provocative. Yeah. To introduce this idea 
as Hannah said, I'm starting a new business. And this is a question that one wonderful person has asked us. <laughs> How can employers hire people disposed towards the constellation mindset? What should they be looking for in candidates? Oh, that's a fun one. <laughs> How do you know you've got one in front of you? <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, so I, I sort of quickly put it through the filter of people who could expect to be needed at a meeting, could expect to need others, and could expect to be changed as the result of that interaction of being needing, needing others, and being changed. So I don't know how there are clever people who could figure out, which I have not, I'd love to know, how to kind of screen for, test for. My hunch is it's most of us. It isn't some obscure thing. It's a way of behaving. And it, there was a, a wonderful a book that meant a lot to me when I was younger was Good to Great, which is a great one of the top selling business books of all time. But I sort of once you get this constellation mindset, you look at everything in a new light. And Jim Collins, who wrote that book, was fascinated by these leaders who seemed to be incredibly driven for their company and humble. And he kind of couldn't figure out how you could be driven and humble. And it was confounding to him. And he ran what he called a management laboratory. And he couldn't isolate it in his management laboratory. And as I reflect on it, I was like, you're never going to be able to find what it is your questioner is asking or what you want for your company or what I want isolating an individual in a management laboratory because it doesn't exist in you. It exists between us. And, and that's where I do the Jimmy Carr test. Now, his, he, I get a kick out of his humor. I got to meet Jimmy early on in London, as, as you know. And here's how I would reflect on it. So Jimmy says, I've never met a stand-up comedian. I love stand-up comedy. So I asked him how many jokes he gets when he's trying in leads. Ten new jokes in leads. How many get a laugh? The answer was three. I thought that was interesting. And then I moved on and he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, no, Matthew, let me tell you one more thing about jokes. They're really weird. If you put, if you play a song and no one likes it, it's a song. If you put on a play and everyone walks out, it's still a play. If you tell a joke and nobody laughs, it's just a sentence. And I was like, Jimmy, did someone famous say that? He's like, no, no. Well, I guess he's famous, but he's like, no, I said that. I was like, have you said that a million times? He's like, I just said it for the first time now. And I was like, I'm telling everyone I meet that story. And he said, why? And I said, because that to me, leadership is a joke. The comedian does his or her part. The audience member does their part. Together, they make a joke. Right? So it lives in the in-between. That is a co-creation, a simple one. Tell a joke. The other person, you made that together. It, it's not something I gave you or talked at you. And so much of leadership is just a bunch of sentences. A lot of the technology we use is just a sentence redistribution mechanism. But if you look for real connections that happen between and among people, that's where the that's where power can be created. Okay, Matthew, building on that, you'll be glad to hear this question. Great talk. It starts off with. So thank you. How can employees encourage their bosses mm. to follow the Mary the Mary Parker Follett line? Okay, this is probably the question I've gotten most in the four weeks or so since I've been on the Zoom trail uh, with the book. Here, here's what I would suggest. Let's say you're in a meeting together with your boss. I wouldn't start trying to get her or him to change their mind up front. It's a lot to ask. Let's just say that they're, your guess is they're slightly hostile to this idea because the pyramid has suited them well thus far. Let's just assume that. If you and a few of your colleagues in your next meeting can agree in advance that you are going to, between the two or three of you, disagree constructively about whatever it is you're talking about at that meeting, right? And maybe you draw it up on the whiteboard or however you do it in your, in your culture. Constructively disagree so that by the end of that meeting, you have come up with a determination or a possible way forward. And this, your, your boss, you're not asking her or him to like give up their power right away, right? And delegate or anything like that. But if they watch that happen, smart people on their team disagree and come up with something better together than they did separately. That is so much more rewarding to be part of and to witness than the alternative. That if you keep doing that enough, they'll get sucked into it and they'll start doing it. I, used, I did this little trick when I was ambassador. We'd get all these amazing American, you know, the head of the Department of Defense or the Secretary of State or, you know, whatever. They all came through London. 
And by a matter of tradition, they felt like they always had to do a courtesy call, which is a weird term, with the ambassador. But they'd come so often that I was like, please, I don't want to waste your time, you know, Attorney General Lynch or whoever it might be, please. And they're like, no, 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 we really should. And somehow our bureaucracy demanded it. So I was like, well, I'm not just going to have polite tea for the umpteenth time with so-and-so. It's a waste of her or his time. So I would start this little trick doing what your questioner asked. I'd have like the butcher paper out and I would draw a little simple diagram of what I thought whatever issue is they were coming to London to talk about. Let's say it was like surveillance changes that Obama made post Snowden, all that kind of important stuff. I'd be like, I think this is what you're doing. And of course it would be partially right, mostly wrong. And then someone on their team would go up and be like, tentatively, like, I'm not a good artist, but you drew this arrow the wrong way and they'd go make it better. And then by the end of 20 minutes, it's very simple. I have a huge collection of these back home. We would have just done a sort of crude whiteboard drawing where everyone was slightly smarter about what it is. I didn't say what I was up to, but I got smarter. I was changed at every interaction. They were experts. They got to try to explain it and teach it to someone. And just those little patterns... And then I found that these years like, oh, we should do that again. Like that was not normal and it was fun and enjoyable and meaningful and people left just a little bit changed. So that would be my long-winded answer to that great question. We're approaching seven o'clock, but I think we can squeeze in one more, Matthew. And thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you, uh, the great audience, for a bit of your patience, but it's been such a great talk. I want to overlay it with COVID, but let's, let's just keep it in the sense that the questioner has put it. Are you optimistic that we are switching back from a pyramid era to a more constellation style era? Maybe if people on this Zoom and me, it, it, this is going to require a leap out of the pyramid default mindset into this new mindset. And the good news is that the act of leaping greatly increases the odds of other people leaping, right? So this is a great Mary Follett thing that you got from William James, which is like, if you stare at an apple on a tree and you really hope that gravity doesn't make it fall down as opposed to fall up, like what you think and feel has no relation to the apple falling from the tree. But in the realm of human affairs, which is what we're all talking about, politics, economics, this is us, all of us. If you withhold trust from someone until they show trust to you, you are decreasing the odds that they extend trust to you. If you decide to take a leap and extend them trust, you increase the odds that they, you're not guaranteeing it. There's no guarantees in the constellation world, but you're increasing the odds. So I am hopeful that if more people take this leap, that we will do it. And then I guess the final thought to that question is, and you could insert any of the debates going on, COVID or otherwise, in the UK or in the US, you get the crowd that wants to end it, whatever it might be, end capitalism, end the funding of the police, end big, you know, you name it, across the political spectrum, end it, end our relationship with so-and-so organization. Then that immediately drives the group that's like, no, 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 the defendant camp. So you've got end it, defend it, end it, defend it. And I think the constant, the moment requires that some of us make a leap, not into end it, and not into defend it, but into mend it, to amend and mend the rules of a game that we love and we care about. That's the work we need to do, to mend these things. And I think you can only mend things you love. Final cheeky question. Yeah. yeah. Final cheeky question, Matthew. Uh-oh. Boris Johnson rings you up and says, I've read your book. What advice would you give me as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? If you wanted to go try to... Oh, that's that's a hard one. I would say... Try to that it is not a choice between being free and being together, that it is about being fully free, fully together. We have to redevelop those habits of being free together and don't get into the end it and the defended camp, even though we're all been trained to be good at that. And maybe I'd say quick show of hands. How many people here like to lose an argument? And no one ever raises their hand. So why do we spend so much time and energy trying to be smart and clever and trying to win arguments when no one wants to lose them? I think it's terrible math. And we can be free together through and with one another if we make this leap. Matthew, thank you so much for that incredibly interesting and insightful hour of your time. Thank you as well for 
the power of giving away power. It is a super read. It's got so many interesting ideas and interesting ideas that push you on to think about other things and push you into different ways of thinking. So I enormously enjoyed it. Absolutely. Come on. Thank you so much for your thoughtful reading and your annotated notes and your great questions. Thank you, everyone on the Zoom. I can't see you all, but for your great questions. And I'm at MatthewBarzen.com to answer questions, suggestions where you see this working, not working. I'm hungry for for your experience and your insight. And come on, best of luck with your new venture. And I'm so glad we could meet again. Thank you so much, Intelligence Squared followers who come to these events and listen in so intelligently and ask such great questions. Thank you for joining us for this hour. Thank you very much, Matthew, for such a fascinating talk. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.